Our scripture reading for today is found in Philippians 3, verse 12, and it goes through chapter 4, verse 1. If you will stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you're reading from the Black Bible that's underneath the chair in front of you, it's found on page 981. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. Well, good morning. That's a re- good morning. Thank you. It's that, it's, that, it's that drill instructor, Marine Corps, got to have a response to a offering like that. So... Just to kind of set the stage of who's who, because I, I know that there's some of you here who don't know me and have not been going here long enough that you've heard me um, preach, and you see Jonathan up here, and if you've been going here long enough, and you know Jonathan is our lead pastor, our teaching, our primary teaching pastor, and you see him, and yet he's not up here preaching today, and you're wondering why he was at school uh, this week studying to continue his uh, degree in uh, his master's degree in theology, so um, I am now been tasked to preach today. So Jonathan is the primary teaching pastor here, but the rest of us teach as we are called upon to teach some better than others. But I am encouraged that just a few weeks ago we read that there should not be any grumbling, so um, I'm praying that you'll remember that passage as well today. So... Um, my name is Tom. I'm one of the pastors here, obviously, and I'm glad to be here with you all this morning and um, excited, but yet also challenged about this text that we're going we're gonna to go through this morning um, because as a lot of us say as we come up here and you dive into this and you work through a text like this to, to preach and teach, um, it is primarily for the person who's teaching and preaching and then I just get to share what God's trying to press on me with you. So hopefully that's the way this will come across this morning as well. I want to thank, too, just before I get started in any of this, the, the elders have been a great encouragement this week, and, and they've coddled me, they've coached me, uh, they've encouraged me, and uh, it's just a blessing to have another group of men like that around me, speaking into me and helping me and encourage me. And so I uh, just uh, thank you guys for your, uh, your, your lifestyles that are like Christ and your friendship that has blessed me. All right, so 
Amanda read the text, and uh, this is the last half of chapter 3 that we'll be going through this morning. Um, Just want to give you a brief overview, so here's kind of the way that I've laid it out. The theme for today is a life of gospel progress is worthy of passionate pursuit. A life of gospel progress is worthy of passionate pursuit. And so I've broken it down, two main chunks of scripture. The first being 3, 12 through 16 is a life of gospel progress. The second half being progress is worthy of a passionate pursuit, which will be 3, 17 through 21. And then the last little piece of 4, 1, which I've called the exhortive portal, because we'll hear it from me today, and I think Jonathan's going to reach back next week and start with 4, 1 as well. But we're not really going to hear anything new today in this passage. Um, It's really going to be Paul just continuing to reinforce things that he's already and previously spoken about in this letter to the Philippians, right? The passage today has a clear point. It has a clear meaning, um, but he's going to say things and do things that we have heard him say previously in the letter to the Philippians, like a life worthy of the gospel, humility, working out our salvation, sanctification, citizens of the gospel, guarding against false teaching, unity among the believers, as well as naming specific people like Timothy and Epaphroditus um, in this passage as well, or referring to them or inferring to them as well. So if you haven't been with us, if you're new, if today's the first time you've been here, uh, we are going through the book of Philippians, and that's how we, we teach here is through a book expositorily. And so I just want to give you just a quick overview of kind of the, the book of the Philippians. Paul's in prison he is, when he's pinning this letter to the church, remember that, to the people and or the church of Philippi. His chief theme really of the letter to the Philippians is encouragement, and he wants them to live out their lives as citizens of a heavenly colony, which we'll hear some of today, as evidenced by the growing commitment to service God and to others. The way of life that Paul encourages to the Philippians and us is manifested uniquely in Jesus Christ and his saving work, as was evident in the life of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. So as we get started today, we look at the passage from 3.12 through 4.1. We just see continued encouragement from Paul to the Philippians and us as he's already brought light to this in the letter to the Philippians. And if three, Jonathan, I think last week said something to the effect that 3, 1 through 11 was a departure, and it was doctrine. Um, today, this is then 3, 12 through 21 would be a departure, if you will, and it's Paul's practical advice on heaven, for heavenly citizens. So if you would, let me pray, and then we'll get into this, all right? Lord, I pray that um, you would remove anything that I say that is not Um, in line with you and your character and your word. Lord, that you would just, um, your Holy Spirit would guide and direct me as I speak this morning, but it would also be guiding and directing the hearts of those that are receiving this. And that if I, and where I proclaim the truth, let the Holy Spirit uh, just continue to break my heart and our hearts to know you more and to transform us to be more like you. Lord, I'm, I'm not even sure that I can whisper today, follow me as I follow Christ. Because you have revealed to me uh, much immaturity in so many ways. But I'm, I'm hopeful in that who you are and the power of your Holy Spirit in me 
that I know that one day I will be in your presence and I will stand before you made perfect. And we, as those saved by grace, can find our hope and our trust and our faith in that assurance. Lord, just uh, be, be proclaimed and be made famous this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a life of gospel progress is worthy of passionate pursuit. And I've said already, we see that this is broken down into two uh, main chunks and kind of what we're going to hear today is we're going to briefly revisit Paul's transformation as it weighs on this text as well. We'll see that Paul, of all people, doesn't rest on his laurels. We'll see him again warn against false teaching. We'll see him remind us of our glorious destination of heaven. And lastly, we will see him exhort us to stand firm in the faith. So let me start with just that first block of scripture, three twelve through 16, and read that again for us. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So this first section of of the scripture that we see is rich with yet another athletic metaphor which Paul likes to use. And, and I think we can almost deduce from this that Paul is, or was, in his time, a sports fan, right? Because he uses so many different sports analogies when he's talking, whether it's boxing or wrestling, or, but his favorite is running, I think, and, and the foot race, and where he traveled and just the other things that were going on that were in comparison to the Olympics. I believe that he is, a, he is an athlete, a, a sports fan, and was possibly in by the Olympics that he saw uh, in his travels. He says, whether he says it to the Ephesians in 6.12, and it seems that you start to look at various passages and aspects, that it is the foot race. In 1 Corinthians 9.24-26, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating in the air. And we have verse 14 today that starts off and speaks as that race metaphor, if you will. The first chunk of the text is summed up of life could be a life of gospel progress, as we said. Paul's passionate concern for spiritual growth, or in a word, sanctification. And sanctification is not intended to be done alone, and when it is done with others, then I think we call that discipleship. And like physical children, so should we as spiritual children desire to grow. If you were to ask an eight-year-old, do you want to stay an eight-year-old? They, they might at the very moment say, yeah, I think so. But most likely they wouldn't because they're looking forward to the things that they get to do as they grow older. Whether that's go to junior high or go to high school or get a driver's license or get married or get a job or be a fireman or a race car driver, whatever they think that they want to do, right? They're always looking to grow. And as spiritual children, that's what Paul's saying here to us, we should too. 
There's a little footnote. I guess there is some concern, especially in the area of men, that we see some extended adolescence in Christendom of men continuing to be adolescent and act adolescent and live like an adolescent. So there is a concern there. But inherently, Paul is telling us that we should have the desire as spiritual children to grow. The text is a continuation of Paul's testimony. If you look back at verse 4 previously where he said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he went on to give his whole litany of why he should have confidence in the flesh, right? So looking at that and, and really understanding that this is where Paul is looking back on his moment of conversion and drawing from that, that he is passionate about knowing Christ. And we see that when we look back at verse 10, that Jonathan, you ended at last week with 10 and 11, where it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings because like him, becoming like him to, in his death. And so we see that Paul, even though he's at this point had many, many years in ministry, in walking in a Christ-centered life, growing in Christ-likeness, that he's not yet arrived. I like the quote from John MacArthur that says it like this, obviously pursuing spiritual perfection begins with dissatisfaction in one's present spiritual condition. So spiritual perfection begins with dissatisfaction of knowing that where we are is not fully mature, is not where we want to be. If anyone could possibly feel like they were pretty close to being perfect, we could make the argument that Paul would be that, right? He's written two-thirds of the New Testament. He's started how many churches. He's seen how many people come to Jesus, but he doesn't. The rest of verse 12 gives us even more encouragement to Paul's progress where he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The zeal that Paul has after all these years in ministry is to know Christ more. That's his deepest desire, to know Christ more. Even though he's been walking with Jesus, he's started churches, he's done all these incredible things, his desire, his personal desire is that he would know Christ more. I'm going to take a brief detour back to Acts 9. If you want to turn there with me, you're more than welcome. But I think part of this is um, really important to understand where Paul was. And so if you're familiar with Scripture, you know Acts 9 is Paul's conversion. And I'll just read a couple of different excerpts from it, but I'm going to start at 9-1. But Saul, that was his name prior to being converted, right? But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, that's Jesus, that's the Christians, went on to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said to him, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
but arise and enter the city and you will be told what to do next. This is where Christ lays hold of Paul. This is what he is saying when he is talking here that I have been laid hold of by Christ. And I believe that there is a goal that is consistent in God saving him. And we see what that goal is from Paul in Romans 8.29 where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The race Paul is running is the race that all believers are running, and that we run until either Jesus returns or we go to be with Jesus. It's a lifelong pursuit of Christ's likeness. Verse 13 and 14 says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Again, he He does this, and he says, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is emphasizing again that he's not made this on his own, and he's remembering when Christ made him his own, that it was nothing he did. It was by grace and grace alone. But he's also saying that he has not reached spiritual perfection. And you'll see a few verses here in a little bit that he is doing that to dispel false teaching that at the time said that you could reach spiritual perfection in this life and Paul had blessed spiritual discontentment we've already established that that kept him focused on the one pursuit of his life growing in knowledge and in his relationship with Jesus Christ but he says but one thing I do and the I do in the Greek was not there because it's implied Paul wrote this in a brief, impassioned, almost abrupt manner. The apostle focuses on his goal was total. His level of concentration, acute. The athletic metaphor is still alive and well in these verses, knowing that runners keep running with their eyes forward and pressing on through the race to the finish line. The runner that looks around, worrying about who's behind him or what's, what, how much track he's run, is the runner who will generally not run the race well. Looking around while you're running, especially if you're running hard, you're most likely to trip over your own feet or run into another runner who's running the race with you. Paul's focused. He is intent on the goal and he's not looking back over the landscape of his life, remembering either the failures, and he had failures, or that he isn't also dwelling on past successes either. Both were distractions from the present focus and the focus of the goal and the daily passionate pursuit for Paul to grow more like Christ. We do well to remember this as well. We cannot live on past victories or be disabled by past sins and the guilt associated with it. Again, the word straining forward depict these muscles in this runner maxed out, legs churning. I, I kind of envisioning the, uh, the, the, the mile in the Olympics and just that last 110 yards and just the, the intensity, if you look at those guys' arms and their legs and the breathing and just the, the intensity of them running for the finish line, for the gold, that's the intensity that I, I envision when I read this from Paul. And Paul uses the present verb, I press on, which is also a key for us to, re- to remember that, and the Philippians to remember 
that this is ongoing and this is continuous. Not only has he not going to rest in his laurels, but this is an ongoing, continuing thing that he is going to continue pressing on. The prize is what motivates him to run the race well. Paul and all believers will not receive this prize, obviously, and this Christ-likeness and all its eternal benefits until the upward call of Christ Jesus ushers us into God's glorious presence in heaven and our salvation is finally complete and our glorification is experienced. Paul does this well in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 where he says, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. R. Kent Hughes, who I'm going to read from his commentary here in a minute, had this, this sentence that I thought really summed this up. Paul's magnificent quest to know Christ fully was matched by his magnificent humility, which allows Paul to make the appeal to the Philippians in verse 15 and 16, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul is not in this spiritual race alone, As all analogies do, the race metaphor will break down at some point, and it does at this point, because in a race, only one wins the gold, right? If we're envisioning that Olympic mile or marathon or whatever the race is, only one guy is going to get the gold medal. But the truth is, in the spiritual race, all of those who've been saved by grace will win the prize and receive that one day, as Paul so eloquently said, that not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing, the prize will be presented in heaven as well. The word mature in verse 15 is uh, translated in some other translations as perfect. Um, Whether mature or perfect, again, Paul was not speaking about practical perfection, as that would contradict what he said earlier in verse 12. There was some irony, though, in the tone of this passage, again, to call the Philippians out to be aware of those who were teaching that perfection could be attained. And we'll we'll get into that a little more when we get into the next set of Scripture. There may have even been some in Philippi, in the church of Philippi, that believed this, that they could attain spiritual perfection on this earth. Paul was saying, if you thought this way, then that revealed that you weren't mature, Paul wasn't going to argue with them necessarily, but he was going to say, I'm going to trust God to reveal it to you, just as God has revealed air to him. Paul was telling them really, in a, in a more direct way, that this was wrong thinking, and he's going to tell them in a few verses that to continue this wrong thinking could lead them to finding themselves on the side of the enemy of the cross. Again, Paul's goal was Christ-likeness and his pursuit was relentless. And being a pastor, he knew that not everyone was going to have that strength and focus that he had for knowing Christ more. But the reality of this is, is that we all have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in us that dwelt in Paul. We all have that power in us to achieve and to know Christ more. Not by our own strength, but by God in us. 
Finally, in that first section of verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. It could be said that during this, this verse, it, he basically is saying, oh, one more thing. Um, I think Jonathan said last week, he kind of gave us a juke that he said, finally, like, fake this out. Well, this is kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, and one more thing before I finish this. One more appeal to you, um, Philippians, that we should remember to pursue the prize of knowing Christ more, and that word is consistency. Paul includes himself in this with the language of us, right? Meaning I need to hear this, Paul, as well as me. I need to be reminded. I need to be encouraged. Even me, Paul. Which again testifies to both Paul as a pastor, a good pastor, and a man of true humility. This also speaks of what Paul has been saying kind of throughout the letter. That this is not, this is individually that he's challenging them to know Christ more. For us to individually know Christ more. But it's also a corporate challenge as well. It's also a corporate goal. That let us have all the same goal. Let us become more like Christ. May that be both Delta's personal corporate goal and our personal goal that we will encourage and challenge one another to passionately pursue Christ's likeness. May we die running hard for and with Christ. So let me read the second block of scripture here, 317 through 41. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, turn, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. And then one says, Therefore, my brothers, again, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm, thus in the Lord my beloved. A life of gospel progress is worthy of passionate pursuit. Paul is calling us to passionate pursuit by following him and others as they follow Jesus. Paul is going to warn us about others that we might be tempted but should not follow because they are already leading falsely to destruction. He then closes with the hope of all those who have been saved by grace and have citizenship in heaven that that is our destination And it is set, and it will be a glorious day when we arrive. In 4.1, we see him exhorting us to stand firm and pointing us back, actually, to 127 that we read several weeks ago and that has come back up throughout the letter as we've gone through it. 127 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, a lot of that language of striving, a language of unity, that we are side by side, that we are of one mind, that we are of one faith. Your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. 
if we're pursuing Christ's likeness, isn't our goal, as our goal, isn't it likely that our lives will be worthy of the manner of the gospel? If we're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together, side by side, if we're holding true to what we have attained, won't that look like we're standing firm as one? If we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, won't that look like we're all running hard for Christ? Growing in Christ's likeness is a tough and demanding business. And I've already said, we don't do this on our own strength. This isn't something that we can conjure up on our own, but we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that has been given to us. And while sanctification kind of is just the big fancy word for growing in Christ's likeness, and it is a personal responsibility, there's a major aspect of that that demands us to do it in community with other believers who are of the same mind and of the same spirit. So we see Paul in 3.17 say, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So, kind of like this illustration of this whole follow me. Have you ever been to like a real fancy dinner party and you're escorted to your table and you stand there and you look at this table that has now got more dishes and silverware on it than you probably have in your cupboards at home and you're like, oh my word, we're going to use all these? And so you kind of look around and you notice that some of these people there kind of actually look like they're comfortable in this element. So you sit down, and the salad comes. I can rule out I'm not going to use my knife. I'm not going to use my fork or my spoons, probably, but I've got like five forks. So what do I do? <laughs> Eat with my hands, right? I watch the other guys that are around the table and see what they do and they pick up the fork farthest out or whatever. I don't even know what the right etiquette is. Is that right? I'm looking at my wife. And I follow their lead, right? Well, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. He's telling us to look around. Look around and see others who are following Christ well and to follow them. But the question comes... If we're not growing in Christ's likeness, if we're not growing in the knowledge of Christ that Paul referred to back in verse 10, 310, then how can we rightly discern who's following well and who's following perhaps and leading us away, right? Again, our personal responsibility for growth helps us then discern who we follow. Paul's telling the Philippians, whom he affectionately calls brothers, some specific people that they can follow which he refers to and infers to both himself, obviously. He refers to Timothy and Epaphroditus, but he's also making a general statement that they can look to the overseers and the deacons in the church at Philippi, and they can follow them as well. This idea that Paul thinks he's perfect and that's rooted in pride, we've already kind of established earlier that that's not where he's coming from. Paul is very open that he is a sinner, chief among most, right? But he's in passionate pursuit of Jesus. So in his statements here, he says, following him as an imperfect sinner. And that's what any of us that would breathe those words that would say, follow us as we follow Christ, would be with that caveat that you are following us as imperfect sinners as we follow Christ. And where we don't follow Christ, don't follow us. (laughs) 
you see this come up all the time in husband and wife relationships, being the guy that works with the men predominantly. It's a rare occasion, but occasionally I get to speak to the wives. And from time to time over the years, I've been saddened by the fact that the wife will come to me and say, you know, I'm trying to submit to my husband. I'm trying to be a godly woman, but he's asking me to submit into sinful ways. Is that, am I supposed to submit to that? And that's absolutely no, right? Well, that's kind of what Paul's going to say here. He's saying, follow us as we follow Christ, but beware that you don't follow people blindly into sin. Paul says, and clearly establishes that Jesus is the model, right? Back in 2.5 he said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And actually, we're about to see Paul warn us as to who not to follow or imitate those who would lead us into sin or condone sin by either adding to the gospel or subtracting from it. And I look back over my life and I, and I realize um, that there have been specific men scattered along the trail of my life that I've been able to follow them as they follow Christ. Scott Brindley, Alan Satoris, Jim Talley, those names mean nothing to you probably, but they mean something very important to me because these men are the men who have said, follow me as I follow Christ, although they didn't actually say that. Their lives displayed it. But these are the men that spoke into my life through the years and have helped me understand what it is to walk as an imperfect sinner and to have spiritual disciplines to be a godly man, to be a godly husband, to extend and receive grace, to extend and receive forgiveness. And as I said, quite honestly, I can't remember any of them that said to me personally, Tom, follow me as I follow Christ. But their lives said it for them. And I rightly discerned that these were men who were following Christ as we should discern those around us who are the men and women amongst us that are following Christ and that we can follow and grow. As a church, it'll be the same, right? As we grow as individuals in our Christ-likeness as a body and we serve together one spirit, one mind, showing that we have our hope in Christ, the world then sees that as well. Paul gives the Philippians the example of who to follow and now he follows up in 18 and 19 of who not to follow. In 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Again, this verse, like 12, strikes an urgency that it's important that we are following Christ, that we are running for and with Christ. We've used this illustration on numerous occasions, but I think it applies really well here as well, in that when American government employees who are in the area of counterfeit for currency, they don't study the counterfeit currency to be able to figure out what's real and what's fake. No, they study the real currency and they know it beyond a shadow of a doubt 
so that when the fake bill gets laid in front of them, they can pick it out. And so I think that's the same. Again, if we're growing in Christ's likeness, then we should be able to rightly discern who is counterfeit and who is not. The idea that there were many and that he had told the Philippians about them before, as he wrote, and that he says that he's weeping. And I, I, I realized, studying for this, that this is the only place in the present tense where it says Paul is weeping, which should then escalate the intensity of the emotion that Paul is carrying with this command. And sometimes, going back to that Damascus Road story, I wonder if in this instance he isn't seeing and understanding the depth of his sin and the greater depth of God's grace. And that is also creating even additional sorrow for these enemies in the most painful way. So realizing the depth of our sin and the greater depth of God's grace should never leave us. I know it doesn't me. Remembering how God laid hold of me and rescued me, the wretch that I am, by his grace and his mercy, helps to keep me humble majority of the time. And when I get out of check, that's all I need to do is go back and remember that. Jesus warned himself of the dangers of false teachers in Matthew seven fifteen. He said, beware of false prophets who come, to, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul doesn't specifically name who these enemies are in this passage. And I think that's intentional so that they wouldn't get transfixed on certain people and just know the, avoid them, but that they would be ever-present, ever looking to and fro to try and discern who were the ones that were teaching and leading something contrary to the true gospel. MacArthur's um, commentary that I used as part of this, uh, I'm going to greatly paraphrase this, but he basically said there's two enemies, Jews and Gentiles. (laughs) I think that's everybody. So um, that covers all of us, right? That covers everybody out there. As Jonathan said last week, the Judaizers were teaching a gospel plus, right? That you needed to add something to the gospel. Add circumcision, add the law, and then you could be saved, right? This week, Paul's also saying there were teachers who basically are subtracting from the gospel and teaching that unrepentant sin could continue, thus taking away the gospel need to confess and repent and turn away from that things that the Bible clearly identifies as sin, The false teachers believed that sin involving the body was apart from the spirit and therefore could continue. This was the early forerunners of Gnosticism. And it taught spirit was good and matter was evil and the body was matter. So you could continue being a glutton, a drunkard, a homosexual, an adulterer. And all those were inconsequential to your one salvation. And we know that that's not true. Paul knew the people who once followed him as he followed Christ who walked away from the faith. And uh, while this wasn't specifically mentioned, I was drawn to a message I heard several years ago from a guy out in Focus on the Family that talked about Demas. Um, And you can go do your own study on Demas. But basically, Paul talks about Demas and walking away in 2 Timothy 4.10 where he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Paul clearly knows 
personal people who have walked with him and walked in his ministry that have turned and now are enemies of the cross. And we probably all know people as well. I know I do. I've had personal relationships with men who um, it looked like they were getting it, but the reality of it was uh, they didn't. And they ended up creating all sorts of havoc in their home by walking away from marriage and children. And it just absolutely destroys you. Reality is we have three enemies, the flesh, the world, and Satan. And Paul gives us four distinct marks or identifiers, as we will see here in verse 19. And they are this. The doom they face, their end is destruction. The deity they serve, their God is their belly. The disgrace they bear, and they glory in their shame. And the disposition they display with minds set on earthly things. The end is the same for all who reject the gospel. They are all hell-bound, and their train will arrive at the station. They will disembark, and the eternity of separation from God and the torment will never cease. Hell is real. This shocked the Philippians upon hearing this, and it should shock us too that the great judgment will be just, And those trusting in what they could do to earn it or add to the gospel, as well as those denying the gospel powers to transform lives, will find their eternal destination in hell as well. They worshipped other gods. They had many idols. They placed their desires above Christ. It's not necessarily just their bellies, what they were eating. It's that they turned grace into licentiousness. Jude 4 states this well where it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These folks were boasting about their sin. Putting it in the two groups, the Judaizers and the Gentiles, It looks like this. The Judaizers bragged basically about their rubbish, the things that Paul said, here's all the things, here's all my credentials, and I count these as rubbish rubbish that Jonathan said last week. That's what the Judaizers are counting as gain. And Jonathan used the the statement about a P&L statement last week. If this is the case, then they've put all the loss on on the gain column, and that has created spiritual bankruptcy and will land them in hell. The Gentile libertines, on the other hand, also boasted about the wrong things, and they boasted about their supposed freedom to pursue any and all sensual desires. And they were most proud of their worst perversions. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, it reads like this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? The last of these four characteristics or identities that that Paul gives us is this whole inner disposition that what governed them by their earthly sphere of sin. They had abandoned their pursuit of Christ's likeness They'd set their minds on those things that were diametrically opposed to the whole citizenship in heaven. 
and the earthly focus was evidence that they were not saved. But you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And one commentary summed it up like this about this last identity. He said, they live as though God is dead, as though heaven and hell are myths, and as though this life is all there is. I don't know about you, but this seems to really, not only was it applicable 2,000 years ago, but doesn't that smack of reality of where we are today? God is dead, heaven and hell are myths, and we live as this, there is no life after this. Paul departs, though, from this serious tone, the heaviness of this verse, for this heavenly upward call. So we, we get, amidst you know, the bad news of where this is, what Paul is sharing, he ends this on an up, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we will await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And for one, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Their motivation and ours in pursuing Christ's likeness is chief that our eternal destination in God's glorious presence of heaven. Their hope and ours is not in something abstract, but in Christ himself. Paul is communicating to the Philippians that they are currently a colony, colony of heavenly citizens. And this would land with them, right, because they're already under the, under the understanding that they're a Roman colony apart from Rome, right? Yet they are Roman citizens. Paul emphasizes that the Philippians were eager to wait. This eagerness matches the intensity earlier in the, in the passage of the pursuit, right? The contrast, the Roman citizens and its imperial cult worship of Caesar as their savior and with the eagerness of the heavenly citizens awaiting their savior. The arrival of Jesus will also usher in the transformation of our lowly earthly bodies with our new, perfect, resurrected bodies. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine says it best. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let me read directly from this commentary from R. Kent Hughes for this last section. I think sums this up really well. He says it like this. This section heaps encouragement upon encouragement, talking about these last two verses in 20, 21. The Philippians were citizens of the commonwealth of heaven in the continuing presence. This was not some future ending, but an ongoing eternal reality. And as citizens of heaven, they didn't wait, await a pale Roman savior, a petty little Caesar, but rather the savior with the name that is above every other name, Yahweh, Jesus, Messiah, to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and this Savior will someday give them bodies like his own, glorious body as he subjects everything in the universe 
to himself. Stand firm. So I'd summarize this last little chunk of scripture by this. Our salvation which began before the foundation of time came into play at our conversion is worked out with fear and trembling, sanctification while we're here on earth but comes to an end when our salvation bound train pulls into the station at our heavenly destination and we are made perfect by the power of Christ and we will be forever in the presence of God, and that wonder will not wane for all of eternity. Now let me close with 4.1, which says this. Let me reread it. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is both the capstone of this passage in chapter 3 and also the introduction to what he is going to say in chapter 4. As I said, Jonathan will, I believe, is going to reach back and grab this passage as well as he begins next week. This is the most affectionate and endearing language Paul has used anywhere. Brothers, beloved, long for. If this was not Paul's favorite little church plant, this was certainly one of his, one that was very special to him. My crown, my joy, this is what they were to Paul as he exhorted them. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul wanted them to run hard after the full knowledge of Christ. And he told us that in 3.10, 11, 13, and 14 earlier in this passage. In the light of this call to be imitators of godly examples in their lives and the fourfold warning that he gave us in verse 18 of the people who had gone full circle and become enemies of the cross and then the stunning assurance about our citizenship and its glorious outcome, Paul lovingly exhorted his friends, to stand firm. And this is my prayer for you today. Stand firm, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to give you four questions, and quite honestly, these four questions were for me and what God was doing as I was preparing in this. And these questions are the questions that I am working through and wanting to answer. So I thought I'd share them with you and let see if they have any value to you? Are you passionately pursuing to know Christ more? If faithful church attendance is your idea of knowing Christ more, you have set the bar too low. Do you have others who are investing in your spiritual growth? If not, ask God to bring that man or woman into your life now. What idols do you have? What worldly or fleshly desires are you putting above knowing Christ more? And lastly, do you eagerly await either Christ's return or your arrival in the Father's presence? If not, you need to gain a deeper understanding of what the Bible has to say about heaven.